Chase is alive. He killed my friend, now he's coming for me. He's got a death curse. Jason's a legend. I'm Mrs. Ward, an old friend of the Christie's. Jason belongs to hell. You're doing if you stay here. Never come back again. You see, Jason was my son. And today is his birthday. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Return to Camp Blood. I'm your host, Nathan Barker, and tonight I have a very special guest joining me. Now, as our regular listeners will know, we have had numerous Friday the 13th alumni on the show, but have yet to have a guest from the 2009 Friday film. But tonight, that changes, as I would like to welcome director Marcus Nispel. Thanks for joining, and how are you this evening, Marcus? Hello, I'm good. Well, great. I'm glad we could finally get this set up and have you on the show. I know we've been working on this for a little while now, and I appreciate your time. I'm amazed I'm the first one to talk about this. It's like like um like they're blackballing you. Like nobody wants to talk about it in shame. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we've we've had a couple speculative episodes and of course your film gets mentioned numerous times. Uh we I just mentioned it uh, a couple episodes ago. And uh it's not I don't think necessarily that uh nobody wants to join us, but it's a matter of, you know, setting up time, everybody's busy. And sure. uh, with the film being the most recent, a lot of the actors that were in your film, you know, they're currently working on other projects, so it's just kind of hard to set up time. Terrific. But yeah, I definitely appreciate it, but we'll go ahead and just kick things right off. Um, like I said, I did mention your film, you know, fairly recently. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had an episode air where we were discussing our top picks for the best prologue in the Friday franchise. And in my personal list that I had composed for that show, I included your prologue from your film. So I thought we could start off by discussing how basically you created such a badass prologue that was just absolutely, you know, classic Friday the 13th in all aspects. I mean, we had the partying, we had the sex, we had the campfire, we had the intense burning in the sleeping bag, and of course we had Sackhead Jason. I mean... Just wow, you know, that was an awesome job putting that together, Marcus. So, you know, definitely, definitely great work. You know, this is what, what drew me actually to it because, you know, I read the script and, you know, the 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 typical six kids, you know, like 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 I've done a movie like that before, and I go, well, you know, what's new here? And then on page twenty five, they're all dead, and I go, like, I've never done anything like that. I mean, that's pretty unique. So I, you know, it 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 got my interest right away, and uh, it was just such a you know unusual way of. Of doing this, I thought when you meant what you meant with prologue was this black and white thing we did there, you know, of the of the flashback and so on. But yeah, it's definitely the prologue, and it was meant to be, um, um, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a way, you know, this prologue had everything to do with how the movie then continued from the production end. And you know, I was thinking before this call if there's anything I could possibly tell you that you haven't heard before. And I think enough time has passed that I can tell you about all the nightmares that came with this prologue. But go ahead with your questions. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know what? How about I just let you kind of, you know, vibe off that? I mean, you know, we've all, you know, we've your all setup, right? <laughs> you know, there, like there's I so said. many other things to talk about because obviously, you know, uh, uh, um, why do another one of those movies and what draws a filmmaker to it and what draws an audience to see essentially a similar type of material over and over and over again? You know, how does it become our DNA and why do we hold it so dearly? And I, I certainly want to talk a lot about this, which is probably what should come first. But um, when I um, 
when I looked at it, I went like, wow, you know, it's kind of interesting. We have two groups that are ostensibly similar characters, but one dies and then the next group comes right in, right? And I went to the producers and said, you know what? This is great because we shouldn't shoot it in sequence, which is what you usually do for these kind of movies because you see to keep a cast and crew in the hotel for a long time is what is your biggest expense. And uh, so what they like to do is you shoot it pretty much in sequence because this way when you kill somebody off, you know, <laughs> there's no more hotel bill, you know, no more minibar bill, you're done. And in this particular case, um, well, uh, uh, you know, it's it's the same groups going to all the same locations. So I said, look, have both groups stand by, and when we're done with the campground scene, you know, then you know we bring in uh, the new group uh, and shoot them at the campground scene. If the other group goes to the other scenes, you know, then the next group stands by, and we do this sort of in succession. Um, uh, because this way, even though they're in hotels for this whole long time, we only have to shoot, uh, uh, we can shoot out each location. We don't have to go back a few weeks later or a few days later and re-relight it and re-travel to it, you see. And I was very excited about it. So um, the other thing I wanted to do is um, something I did before in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because you have no idea there are people that literally are being brought in for the first day or two of shooting. And if the director falls back, he gets immediately axed, right? So you want to put your first, your best foot forward, and make like the, you know, uh, the best impression on the first day. And when I did Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the first day, we shot 24 pages. So, you know, when the girl blows her brains out there in that van uh, uh, on page 25, that was our first day. So I was a week ahead of schedule on the first day of shooting. And I said, you know what? We're going to do the same on Friday the 13th. And so we start with something very simple. They're like camping, and then they go to the, um, uh, uh, you know, big, big, big bloodshed there at the campground, and and um, uh, we, we 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 do that all at once, um, uh, um, you know, in one day, uh, camping and campfire at least. So that was, I think, I think it was like 15 pages or something like that. So in any case. Uh, Bay calls me right before I go in there, and he goes like, you know, these movies, you know, these audience, they want different things now. You know, these movies, they have titties. And I go, oh, really? Oh, I guess, yes. Um, you know, it's an odd thing. I'm, I'm probably not your typical Friday the 13th aficionado because, to me, um, violence and sex is sort of like, it's not my favorite thing, to tell you the truth. You know, it's not, it's not my brand of sick. Um, but I get it. And so I went like, sure, I go along with it if that's what it is. And so what do you have in mind? You know, so I look in the script and right there on page 10 or whatever, you know, some girl takes her clothes off. And I said, so are they all okay with that? You know, and they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They love it. They can't wait. So uh, we shoot them backpacking. We shoot them, you know, ultimately hanging out at the campfire. And then... Um, you know, there's this girl that's not supposed to take her clothes off. And she goes like, I don't want to, I don't want to. And, you know, immediately, you know, some of the producers come up to me and say, she absolutely has to. You can't go back to that. You know, uh, Michael won't stand for it, you know, and, and, and the studio expects it. It's in the script. It needs to happen. I said, fuck's sake, get a get a, a body double in or, you know, or just like omit it, you know, because... 
If she's not doing this now, what are we going to do? Well, we will have to fire her. That's why if you have to fire her, we have to reshoot the entire, you know, 15 or 20 pages that I just gave you. So be it, right? So they say, you have to talk to her. So I say, who is she? Like, like, what's her deal? And then why would she say yes to something like that? They say, oh, you don't understand. She, she, she is Miss Israel. <laughs> what do you mean she's Miss Israel? Uh, 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 she's a Miss. She's like, she's like, like, like one of those Donald Trump events. But yeah, she's Miss Israel, and and so she doesn't want to do it. And I, and and they say, like, talk to her. If she doesn't want to do it, tell her. She's going to get fired. I said, you're not going to go to a German director and have him intimidate Miss Israel, right? <laughs> like, that's not going to happen, right? So I pull her to the side, and I try to get away from everybody. And she's completely, she's shaking like a leaf for crying out loud. So we go behind one of those tents that are set up. And, uh, you know, there's all the smoke. We call them the, <laughs> the smoke fairies. Those are the guys that are like getting the atmosphere going because there's always like a lot of smoke around when I shoot. And in order to give you this even smoke level, they have these, you know, long, um, they almost look like, you know, plastic sausages and they fill them up with the smoke. And so they're like busy somewhere in the background. And I'm talking to her now, you know, in the midst of all this production chaos. And I say, child, look, you know, <laughs> you know, you show your boobs, but make it fun you know it's like it's not like a lure thing it's not somebody's breathing over you you're sort of like uh, provocative to a guy and it's actually confident somewhat empowering it's not like like it's a sex scene or intercourse right and anything like that uh, so so i have fun with it and and uh, uh um you know it's 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 not that serious right it's like i don't know i don't know i don't know if i should do it maybe maybe not uh, I say, look, it would do me a big favor. I don't care one way or the other. You know, maybe we can replace it with the body double later, but that's the conversation your people have to have with their people. I'm just like sort of like, you know, here to get us to the next to the next place, you know, to the next to the next space. And she she goes, like, well, maybe maybe at that moment the smoke guys got the smoke machine going and it shoots into this big black plastic schlong and the thing bounces up full of steam and points right at her and she's screaming and with her eyes rolling in her head like the cookie monster she's just running away and she never came back so that was that was that was our first shoot date so the next morning she was off the job and i go like now what are we going to do now we have to trash everything we did and they went like yeah you will have to trash everything you have to shoot it again this is a filmmaker's nightmare because not only that I have to now shoot a magical day again, or what I consider at least to be a magical day with another actress, I have to wait for her. Now I'm starting with the other team and everything that I'm shooting, I will have to go back to now once I find the new actress that is willing to take her clothes off. It's a fucking nightmare. That moment, you hate yourself. You hate yourself, that job, that business, and you don't want to ever want to do another movie again because you just lost probably, you know, days and days and days of production value. Uh, so I wasn't a happy camper to stay with the Camp Blood uh, analogy. <laughs> yeah, I can certainly see your frustration with that, but um, that's a great behind-the-scenes story, too. I, I was unaware of that, but let me ask you this. Now, if you would have shot with the first actress compared to what we see in the final film, uh, which one would have been the better take? 
you mean which one of the two actresses? Are you talking about boob size? Well, well I just mean <laughs> I don't care about that shit. I just want to like, you know what? I don't care if I have this boob shot in there or not. I want to go on the, you know, I, I, I want to continue with the movie on what really matters, to, you know, probably much more in the long run. Um, I bet they're both lovely. They both have their reasons. You know, uh, um, emotions play a big part. If you do movies, we all have our own emotions. We all, you know, can change our minds, you know, and, and usually film production shows a great tolerance for it. But if that becomes a deal breaker, in this case, it was, you know, so, you know, you pick up the next day and you roll with it. But, um, uh, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a jump start. Gotcha. No, I was just curious. You know, obviously, I the scene that we see in the you know the final uh, version. I was just curious if it may have been you know better with a different actress or maybe you know. Hey, look, she hikes, she flashes her boobs, and the next thing she goes up and uh, cinders in a sleeping bag. So very you know, true. It's not like you know, it's not you know, like I just lost Meryl Streep, right? But you know, that little call does affect the rest of the production. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. And let's talk about that sleeping bag scene because, I mean, wow, the intensity of that prologue at the very end, I mean, it was just done perfectly. I mean, just wow, something we've never seen, you know, in a Friday film. Of course, we've seen a sleeping bag, you know, in part seven with the girl getting whacked in the, you know, against the tree. But what you did and brought to life in that particular scene was just like, I mean, just, just wow. I mean, all I can say is just absolutely intense. You know, it's a, there's a funny thing I once read, and I really subscribed to it. I read it after I already did Texas Chainsaw, but I read it before I made Friday the 13th, and somebody said, what do you really have to do? What's your responsibility as a filmmaker if you jump on any, you know, pre-existing material, if that's, um, a, you know, a book or a remake or, you know, a prequel or, or a newspaper article? And what they say is you get together with 10 people, to whom the material matters as much as it matters to you. And you talk about it. In this conversation, there are certain things that will, flo- that they will float up on top, right? Uh, a hockey mask, machete, uh, a camp, a-, a lake, right? And at the end, you will have a list of 10 things that everybody is mentioning, that everybody's talking about, and they just have to be in the movie. Right. Otherwise, you do something like Prometheus that does nothing to do with the first alien, and everybody goes like, "What the fuck?" Right. So you go and say, "What? What these ten things are? Those are your givens. That's your north star. Everything else has to change. Everything else has to be reinvented. So it's not just another warm up. And that's that's sort of what I what I live by. Um, so is it a remake? And that regard of those ten points, probably it is. Yeah, and the interesting thing that I, you know, kind of forgot about as far as production goes is you actually weren't on scene at a lake. The lake was actually at a different location, which is a very interesting take on filming in general. Well, that was the next crazy thing, to tell you the truth. So I go like, where are we shooting this? Then you go like, Austin, Texas. Now, I did, you know, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Austin. And I go, well, it's called Camp Crystal Lake. There's no camp and there's no lake. In all of Austin, there was no camp and there was no lake. So I go like, why are we going to Austin? Well, it's a, I think it's a, a right-to-work state. It means something in movie terms because you get tax breaks and whatnot. So, um, so now um, it's a drought, and anything that resembles a lake 
or even a piece of a lake isn't there. So we found actually one place that had a little bit of water. When they had the big rainstorms like a few years ago, that place was just underwater. So apparently water pools there, and there was this house, which would be our party house, and there was sort of an idea of a lake. Really, it's like it's like a pond, if you may. And that sort of ties it in with something that was a lake and a camp that we later found in somewhere in, in Houston, I think. We all had to take a bus over there to shoot everything that happens properly on that lake and, 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 and in that camp. But but that was another bit of piecemeal, you know, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, by the way, a funny side story is when um um when when we were done with production you keep the set for holdovers. In other words, if um, if anything is wrong with the footage, God forbid, or if the studio wants some additional shots, you can go back to your prime locations. You won't lose it, you know, to the next renter. So they had to keep it on while we were finishing up. I don't know where we were, but my kids came, and my wife and I went to the producer, and I said, hey, is it okay if um, if my family can stay there? you know, over the week because, um, you know, it's empty, really, and I don't think we'll have to go back. And they said, sure, 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 I have them there. So my kids at the time, they were like, I think, seven years old. They're playing in the lake, and they're playing at the edge of the lake, and they're they're they're, they're bouncing around in the jacuzzi, right? <laughs> and and all I could see in my eyes were all the ghastly scenes that we... <laughs> that we had in all these places. So I would look at them and they would wave to me like, hey, daddy. And I go like, all right, that's where the chick, you know, got washed up, mangled, nude, you know, or years where the guy laid face down in the jacuzzi. There were some shots that didn't make it. You know, there was a guy whose tongue got cut out. He was lying face down in the jacuzzi and they're playing in the jacuzzi, having a good time. And I went like, one day I'm going to show it to them. They might have some vacation memories and completely traumatize them <laughs> with what we did there. <laughs> wow, that is a great story. Yeah, they would definitely, uh, you know, definitely probably appreciate that story once they're adults. <laughs> yes, they're getting that age now, so I might actually do it soon. I'll let you know how it went. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Once they become the age to actually know how big Friday actually is in the world, you know. That is right. That is right. Well, now, you know, that's always the most daunting thing when you um, when you then go into production and you hear everybody who goes like, how dare they, you know, and what are they going to do? And, you know, there are all these speculations, which is sort of like, you know, what these sites are all about. And uh, I, I, when I when I read this in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was like ready to jump out of a window, you know. And then, you know, uh, uh, it was funny. Just release a trailer and you see how perceptive people really are and like, uh, one guy goes like, oh, um, Jason runs, fail. <laughs> you know, it's like that. And, you know, I, I wanted them to run. I think that was sort of like, you know, the big earth-shaking difference we attempted to do um, where I felt, you know, why why not have them run? You know, like, you know, Safari always lumbered. And, and let's face it, whenever you do something with Michael Bay, <clears throat> action is sort of like a little bit of a bedfellow to horror, uh, maybe to a fault, but um, that's sort of like the Platinum Dunes brand. You know, there's always a little bit more action. So we went like, you know, we don't want him to like lumber around like a like a postal worker, you know, in a in a, in a FedEx uniform or whatever in an overall. We want our guy to be able to to be swift because he's a survivor. He grew up there in the woods. You know, he would have those skills. He wouldn't just be there. You know, like um, like like a walking target. So that's one thing 
I thought, you know, you know, would 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 uh, would make it different. But you know, to show you how how um, you know how much producers care about what you and your fan base um, have to say on these websites. <clears throat> when we premiered it, or when the producers actually brought it to Comic Con, some kid walks up to them. And he says, "Dude, whatever you do." You never take the mask off. Chase never takes the mask off. And they came back to me and they said, we have to reshoot the ending. He can't take the mask off. I said, why? Because some punk told him so. I said, fuck that. There were episodes where he has mask off. He can take his mask off. No, no, no. The fans don't want him to take his mask off because that's why we shot another ending. You know, There was an ending where he goes into the grinder and the mask goes off and for a glimpse you see him looking pitiful, looking vulnerable. You know, the kid, we knew. The, the vulnerability of these characters is always really important for me, you know, and for me it was a big thing, but uh, in the end it was gone, you know. Um, it mattered to me in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's a scene where he takes a mask off and he and you see his destroyed face and um, you see him, you know, when his parents down there are arguing in his kid's room you know, listening in like 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 an abused child, like a child of a dysfunctional family, and with Jason, it was important for me also to show that you know, you know, there is something behind the hockey mask that actually the fans hold very dearly. That is probably the reason why this franchise or these franchises are so undescribable because. The fans identify with the villain. You don't have that in Silence of the Lambs or other movies. There are ostensibly greater movies, Oscar-winning movies, but you watch it once and you don't really care that much if there are sequels. You know, for me, there's only one. You know, uh, Silence of the Lambs, but there are many Friday the Thirteenth and there are many Texas Chainsaw Massacres. And you ask, what is it that makes fans want to? buy the action figure that makes fans want to go and see it over and over again, spawn prequels and sequels and, and dress up as it for, for Halloween. What, what is that? And, and when, I'm, when you meet with the writers of these movies, who are really the consummate fans, right, um, they never refer to Freddy or Jason or, or, or uh, Leatherface as the villain. To them, it's our anti-hero. The villain is the blonde asshole, you know, that, that has a fast car, owns a house, and gets all the girls and won't collaborate. He's a villain. You know, Jason is revered as our anti-hero. And when I heard that, it made all the sense in the world for me. To me, that's what you want to bottle, you know. That is where the great franchises grow. And in your film, basically, Trent was the villain. Friend, in a way, is your typical villain. It's 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 it's, it's a so-called asshole, you know, that won't collaborate. <coughs> I think deep inside we root to the one who was wronged. So let's show how they got wronged. You know, here's here's Leatherface, and you know, I, I I saw a director's commentary from Toby about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and when he talked about it, he talked about his background story that he that he had in his mind when he embarked on doing it, but it's not in the movie. And he said, you know, in, in his eyes, he thought he maybe Leatherface had skin cancer and ravaged his face. So, you know, he's wearing this mask of other kids, the kind of kids that are pretty, 
you know, and happening and made fun of him because he doesn't have a personality of his own. He wears their faces. Persona in Latin uh, means mask. So I went like, let's put it in the movie, right? So for me, it was as important uh, to do something like that with Jason, where we, I mean, it was done. I mean, it's not like this is a mystery that is like what you learn, you know, in the first episode, but to remind ourselves that he's not just a mythological golem, you know, that walks around with a hockey mask and nothing behind it that's worth of our empathy. And one thing that I did want to touch base on, and, <clears throat> you know, with your version of Jason, I've heard you mention in other interviews about your time as a Boy Scout and how that yeah. related towards your version of Jason. And I'm I'm really glad that the film went with a human Jason, you know, being that it was a remake, you were able to, you know, turn it back and have human Jason show up again. And I know that you're always going to get flack. You know, you can't please everybody with these films, and which is unfortunate. There's always going to be haters and people that, you know, like you said, Jason shouldn't run. Jason shouldn't do this or that. But uh, can you maybe elaborate a little bit, you know, on your time in the Boy Scouts that kind of led to you yeah. know, some of the traits well, with Jason? Well, yeah, look, uh, you know, all we can do as filmmakers do uh, put our own perception in it, right? I mean, you know, I never saw it as my calling nor as my obligation to just, um, you know, do whatever they did there. That psycho movie where shot by shot, they just make the same movie again, you know, so you got to get to throw something new in there. Mm, I think, you know, my Boy Scout experience was not just, I was a loner, you know, I was a guy who like, you know, would sit in his room and draw. <laughs> and watch movies. I was your prototypical nerd and fanboy, and I would listen to soundtracks, and I would collect that, and that was my little life, you know. When I got into Boy Scouts, um, in a way, that was my first crew, and it was my first, uh, you know, uh, uh, my first experience in teamwork. Because like in films, you know, with a bunch of able-bodied young kids, you know, I could do something I couldn't do alone, and you know, so immediately I would do my little Super 8 films and cut them together and change my life in more ways than one. And of course, in Boy Scouts, you tell each other these um, campfire stories. And just around that time, Friday the 13th came out. And I remember actually seeing the trailer first. And that was a trailer that you guys all know. It was like uh, one, two, three. And with every number in that countdown, you would see another kill, you know, 12, 13, Friday the 13th. You know, and and we're like, what kind of a movie is that? It's like a kill list I got to see, right? And it all sort of like gelled sort of at the same time. Now, to tell you the truth, I never went out and say one day I will have to make a Friday the 13th movie or, <coughs> excuse me, anything like that. But when it was brought to me, immediately all these things come together in your head, you know, and... um you know, it's funny, you make these movies in your mind. You know, look, I made a Conan movie, and <clears throat> we played Conan in the treehouse and in the sandbox, and we would, like, you know, go after each other with, um, you know, bamboo sticks. I don't remember it <clears throat> the way that these movies were. Some of these movies, you know, I only knew through Mad Magazine spoofs or... You know, I would read about them when they came out in America because I was in Germany. I heard, learned about it very late, you know. like But by the time Star Wars was translated, a year has passed, 
you know, you've already seen it. I would see it a year later. But for a year, you live in the anticipation of these movies to come out. When I saw those trailers, or if I would see the Mad Magazine spoof, I could already buy the action figures. I could buy the lunchbox. I still haven't seen the movie. And I wouldn't see it for another year. That's how long it took to dub it. Now Star Wars comes out, you see it all over the world at the same day. It wasn't like that back then. So you act it out, you try to anticipate it, and in your fantasy, some stuff, at least as far as far as you're concerned, is maybe better than it was in the movie. There was a lot in all these movies that actually disappointed me when I saw it. There was other stuff that completely blew my mind and succeeded all expectation. So when you get to make your movie, it's a little bit about, for me at least, what I and what I thought it would be. And if in that version Jason ran, well then Focusel is gonna run. You know, you don't like it, make your own remake. So, <laughs> so that was sort of my attitude as I went into it. You know. Well, I think that's a great way to look at it. You know, it, it, at that point, you know, it's your baby essentially. You know, you're you're the man behind the steering wheel, and I think you did a hell of a job. You know, I know there's well, people. Well, it's not like I don't care. You know, I want everybody to love it, and I want to fulfill all those expectations. But to a certain extent. You know, look, you know, you, you you clearly are a consummate fan and somebody says, hey, you know, why don't you run this car for a while? You do one of those, right? And and you won't be able to turn off your own take in a way that's what's wanted. If you wouldn't have one, you wouldn't get the job, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you had a pretty big stick to carry. I mean, obviously, you know, Friday was a powerhouse franchise, and you stepping in to do a remake of something that, you know, uh, you're not really sure how people are going to take. You know, are they going to like my version? Are they not going to like my version? I mean, I know that you were under a lot of pressure and everything, but, uh, you know, I probably would have had the same mindset. You know, this is this is the direction that I see, and this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'll I'll deal with uh, the comments later. You know what's a lot of pressure is. You know, I thought doing the new Star Trek that J, that J.J. Uh, Abrams did was a lot of pressure because who's going to play Spock? Who's going to play Kirk? And to pull that off, that's really amazing. To put some put a hockey mask on somebody, you know, and hope the f- fans will go along with that. That's not the same pressure. You know, the real pressure is when you have to. I don't know if you take it upon yourself to remake Casablanca and who's going to play Humphrey Bogart. That's real pressure, you know, Um, because it is not an iconic character in a mask and a kill list. It is to recreate, you know, a person, a a person, you know. Um, So in a way, it's actually easy, fairly easy, and probably the only reason why it's possible to do something like that. Imagine this would be hinging on, you know, a particular character. I, I think it was even like impossible to do another Freddy, you know, uh, um, when they replaced that actor, you know, and he's under, you know, a, a thick makeup, you know, but it was a major disconnect. I remember actually in Germany, one of the biggest actors when I grew up was Charles Bronson. He was even bigger in Germany than he was in America. And Charles Bronson lived, but his voice the guy who dubbed him died and that was the end of charles bronson's career in germany he just didn't talk like charles bronson anymore that was it that's that's tough stuff oh yeah definitely definitely and like i said you know the the pressures are going to be there you know from all different areas i mean 
like I said, I, I loved your version. I mean, I, I'm just kind of curious to myself as, uh, you know, I know people have, you know, had their comments about, you know, Jason running. I've heard, you know, many comments about, you know, Jason holding people captive. What's, what's been the, the main thing that you've heard the most flack about as far as that film goes? I don't know that Jason running came up and I went like, if that's the biggest uh, problem with it, I've done well. <laughs> you know, so like, you know, the worst things you can say about a movie. Um, I think my, in this case, my own criticism is probably, you know, the worst criticism is the stuff that you actually agree with, you know, where you go like, yeah, I said so all the time, you know, and I won't disclose what all that is. But when you do a movie like that, you're sort of, I keep on using that analogy, you're a dog of many masters, you know, they're the rights holders, they're the, uh, um, (coughs) there's several studios involved. You know, there is uh, Platinum Dunes, there is, uh, they're the fans, you know, and you're a little bit being led by all of them. I thought that was a really interesting thing that I tracked on Facebook. I don't know if it made it on your side, but somebody wrote about how the fans are taking over Hollywood because it used to be that you had to deal with the Hollywood brass. And now if you make a movie like Star Wars or, you know, any big franchise or Friday the 13th, more and more fans get to talk and they can, you know, make or break that movie. It's a good documentary on that called The People versus George Lucas. It's worth watching because it talks about that. And, you know, and, and somebody wrote about it and he said, you know, this movie Misery finally became reality, you know, where Kathy Bates and Misery is such a fan when the writer is there, she hobbles him till he writes the ending she wants. And that's more and more where we're getting. And because we're getting there, we get less and less surprises. So how many more Star Wars uh, Star Wars am I supposed to watch where the protagonist starts at some junkyard, his village gets destroyed, and at the end they turn the Death Star uh, death beam off? How many more of those am I supposed to watch now? I love it. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. But how much more often do we have to follow that paradigm? If we don't shut up a little bit, that's all we're going to get. More of the same. Isn't that what everybody's really complaining about? More of the same? Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, I mean, you're you're exactly right. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. But, you know, it, it's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, what what should they do? Should they just put a poll out there, you know, and throw it out there on the Internet and say, you know, hey, here's the three – here's the three scripts or the three ideas that we have going on for the next film, you know, and let's take a vote. And that way, you know, the majority wins. I mean, that's almost what it's coming down to. Well, that's like making a movie uh, in the age of communism with propaganda money. You know, it's like you become sort of, but that's what I mean. You become a dog with, you know, uh, uh, with many leashes. But, But I think in the end, because of that, you have to sort of, you have to put this all in account. You know, I mean, look, hey, you know, I'm not Francois Truffaut. I'm, 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 I'm a fucking commercial filmmaker. You know, I sell Colgate Palmolive, and I sell, you know, cigarettes, and I sell, you know, the U.S. Army. Whatever you pay me for, I will sell it for you. And I know their clients, and I have to, you know, sort of like wrap my head around it. I sell, I sold Barack Obama. Okay, the commercials for him. So, you know, I'm, I'm used to adjust myself to expectations, probably to a fault. And I think who wants to survive in the studio system right now has to do the same. But the far cry from what the original creators did when they would like take off with a bunch of friends in a 
in a in a in a in a in a, in a Volkswagen bus and a and a and a, and a Panavision, you know. It's just a yeah. different breeding ground. So, you know, you can't go back to that, and 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 you try, and um, you know, at the end, you just have to follow your instincts as you weigh that out. You know, you you, you kind of know what you're doing. You know. Yeah, like I said, you know, you're you're totally right. I agree with a lot of those aspects and, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh the way of the 80s, you know, when Friday was king and they were cranking them out, unfortunately those times are over and we do have to deal with, you know, some of the the hurdles and things that you've mentioned and it's unfortunate, but as long as they keep cranking out Friday and keeping Jason alive, you know, that's that's all that really matters. Well, usually when obstacles happen, great stuff happens. And um, uh, look, you know, the shark and Jaws doesn't function. Bruce doesn't function. So let's do some POV shots, right? And that's the magic of Jaws. And in this particular case, something didn't work right at the beginning, um, even before Miss Israel decided not to go nude. And what it was, was uh, there was a writer's strike happening. So here's what happens, you know. I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm delivering below expectations on Pathfinder, right? And I go, okay, I guess it's back to horror film where I'm somewhat trusted over after um, uh, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, maybe, maybe wrongfully so. But at that point, my best bet was to go into another horror movie. I call up. Um, Platinum Dunes, and I tell the guys, so, um, do you guys ever think about doing Friday the 13th? And they're saying, funny, you should ask. You know, we just um, engaged on that a while ago. And I swear to God, I wasn't tracking it. I just brought it up like that. And, you know, would you be interested in in doing this? And I said, I would be. And they said, there's only one problem. Um, There's a writer's strike coming up. There's a short, small window of opportunity, and um, you know we can talk. We 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 have essentially two weeks for the script to come together. Uh, now they've worked with the writers already for a while. Everybody gave their input, and I knew after two weeks there would be a script, and that script would just have to like. And with us, I'm talking two studios, the rights holders, Cunningham, Cunningham, and Michael Bay, and me. Now, if you just know me, I usually like to do 10, 12 drafts till I like it, right? So, <clears throat> and I won't embark on it if I feel it's a bad script. But when I read it, I thought they nailed it, you know? I mean, they're the consummate fans. They know, they look up to me. They did, um, you know, they did this Freddy um, meets Jason movie, right? And, uh, uh, you know, they, they so, so they come... They come definitely from that world, and they know that world. They know the daunting task that it is to do that kind of a spin-off or anything of that sort. And and uh, we all read it, and we all liked it. Now, trust me, you know, I do have other options. And as I said, I can always go back to commercials. And, and I was thinking very hard if this was um, worth my involvement. But when I read it, I thought they really pulled it off. And if you know the committee that had to agree on it, they're as critical as I am, if not more. It's a minor miracle that they came together. And because of the actor strike coming right after they delivered, nobody could fuck with it. And that's maybe why it was worth making it. 
Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, obviously the movie was successful, so after it was given a green light, I'm sure everybody, you know, was happy with the results anyway. I mean, obviously it was successful in the box office and has been successful in the fan base, you know, later on, all the collectibles and everything else that just continues just like all the other Friday films. Well, is it not um, that they have one? I think they have one that's on again and off again, and I'm just like, you know, very tangentially following this. Uh, um, <laughs> I read this on Facebook, you know, when I look at your stuff there, and 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 maybe 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 there's nothing wrong with what they had, but it's too many drafts, too much tinkering, too many cooks in the kitchen. By the way, when um, when I got Texas Chainsaw Massacre dealt, I read the script and I said, you know what? It was a page turner. I loved it. There were maybe 15 or 20 notes that I had of what I didn't like. And the producers were laughing at each other, and they said he liked the Kosar draft. That was the original draft before they started digging with it. And they gave it for me to read, and I loved it. And without knowing it, I pointed everything out that was tinkered with. I didn't know ah. what was tinkered with. Everything I underlined, and I said, that doesn't feel right was brought in later as a so-called improvement. We went back to the Kosar draft, and we shot. Nice, nice. And this is a Friday show, but I do have to give a shout-out to your Texas Chainsaw movie. I love that film. I thought, you know, Andrew did a great job. I thought the the house was great, even though they don't allow visitors, you know, to come check it out. And Arlie Ermey, I mean, holy shit, you know, he that was the <laughs> best addition. I mean, you could not have found a better guy to play Sheriff Hoyt. Oh, I love that man, you know. And again, something, you know, that it's those unexpected things that come out of nowhere because when he walked on the set, he 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 just improvised. And, you know, it's a funny day. That was the one day that the writer showed up and we pretty much shot verbatim everything he wrote. But when Arlie worked on the scene, he just made up his own stuff. And I, I, we loved it. And I went to the writer and I just said, Scott, you know, uh, you know, it's not like all like that. You know, he's just having a ball, and I figured I'd let him run with it. And he says, no, 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 I love it, I love it. Let him do it. This is great. You know, that's when making films is the most fun, you know, when it's when the unpredictable starts to happen. Funny enough, I learned that much later. Did you know Arlie rewrote essentially his entire part? He wrote his entire part for Full Metal Jacket. And now everybody thinks of Kubrick as this huge control fanatic. Kubrick was letting him do it too, you know? So who am I to stand in his way? <laughs> yeah, I read that before that he basically did his own shit. And, you know, I, I think it's awesome because, I mean, the guy's just amazing on film. I mean, even the, the littlest things that most people probably wouldn't think anything about, you know, to the diehard fans, I mean, you just find him amazing. Uh, you know, one of, one of my favorite parts in that film specifically and uh i quote it with my friends every now and again but you know when when they're carrying the the body that's wrapped in the plastic to put in the back of the squad car and he says you know get that nasty ass thing out of the back of my you know uh car and put it in the trunk you know that's like to me that's just fucking hilarious i mean and when he when he's you know telling them you know to wrap up the girl and you know when he was a young patrolman and all that shit i mean that is just <laughs> you know that is just classic r lee right there Yep. Yeah, definitely. So those are the fun parts, you know, when that happens, uh, um, you know, because, you know, doing a remake is such a plotted thing, really, you know, and 
and and then you have to find space in there for improvisation. You have to find space in there, you know, to let the actor run if that's what it takes, you know, just to just to mess with it a little bit, you know. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And like I said, you had the perfect person for that character. I cannot think of a person who could have done a better job. <laughs> Thank you. But we'll get back to Friday though, and just to you know break it down, you know, into simple things, I guess. Let's let's just talk about a couple of your favorite parts of the filming. What was your personal favorite kill shot in that movie? Oh wow, um, I think. I don't know. You know, like, that's all you really think about in the beginning. You say, okay, what's the structure? Well, the structure is um, the setup, and then it's all the kills. And, um, and uh, you know, you, you start to think of the kills, what is the perfect set piece and all that. Um, you know, they're like your, <laughs> like your own children, equally dear, I guess. I think um, the one <clears throat> that... Um, I was happy, really happy with was when the the swimmer, the swimming girl gets killed through the pier with the machete. And actually, um, a large part of that, my storyboard artist, Mark Yates, actually invented. And um, and I just remember nobody thought it would work. Nobody thought it would make any sense, you know. And um, And you see, originally, she was just supposed to drown, you know. She's out there in the water and can't allow herself to come back in. And Jason just stands there, and then she drowns. And even though it's sad and pitiful, I thought it wasn't really startling, and it wasn't active enough, you know. So uh, for her to hide under that pier and then the machete coming out of nowhere, um, I think it was Mark's idea, too, that he actually would pull her up with it. <laughs> he got one more time, one of those thought after boob shots, you know, and then she would just like slide off it, you know, and it was just like a complete surprise. So, so that, that was one I really enjoyed because it actually worked out. I was uh, talking with a friend of mine earlier today and actually he mentioned that is his favorite kill shot in the film also. So, and I agree that that's definitely a, a great shot. Absolutely. Yeah. Terrific. Now, uh, another thing I've heard people make some comments about over the years, and I don't know if this had anything to do with, you know, your thoughts or uh, whatnot, but people talk about the length of Jason's machete, you know, that it's, you know, obviously <laughs> almost sword-like. So I'm sure you've probably heard some comments over the years about that. No, I actually haven't. Longer is better. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the, uh, that's the rumor. Well, for anyway. one thing, if it would have been a short machete... It wouldn't have been long enough to reach her, right? <laughs> so we yeah. needed, I guess, a long one to just get her out of the water there through a pier. I, yeah. I, you know, I go, I, I, I am led by the visual a lot, and you know, one thing that that I do like to comment about, I, it seems to be that almost every movie I make, I make some sort of, um, you know, I, I owe something to Frazetta. Um, you know, I started out wanting to be an illustrator, and. Um, and and sort of like illustrated and storyboarded myself into film and movies, uh, but um, I just loved Frazetta to death and uh, and still do and you know that led to Conan and other misadventures. But um, you know it was interesting when I shot Derek Mears on the first day and you know I put the mask on him and the outfit and so on and you know like I said I just before did this. Um, Viking movies, kind of interesting. You put a big guy, the biggest guy you can find, a hockey player in the Viking outfit, 
it is not a Frazetta yet. You know, it's like the guy just stands there like a big coat rack. But there are some guys that understand how to wear it, right? And, you know, I literally had to teach some of those Vikings how to stand, how to sell the outfit, right? So it doesn't just look like an extra in an outfit. Um, so, so you know, when I put this stuff on Derek, I went like, well, is he going to look like one of those... You know, just like standing there and just sort of like hangs on him. And I look at him, he's sort of like pushing through his legs. And, you know, he stands on one leg and the other one is loose. And then he puts one arm slightly behind. And then he starts to swing it a little bit. And I looked at it and I say, you're doing Frazetta. And he says, what you, how do you know? <laughs> I said, I know Frazetta. He says, I was fucking absolutely thinking Frazetta. You know, it's just like, how can I put some dynamic into all these layers of clothes and plastic, you know? Um, and I keep on telling people, you know, like, like what's Conan? It's, um, it's a bodybuilder, you know, with a lot of baby oil and a paper mache crown and a plastic sword. Everything else is how we light them. The smoke level, the atmosphere, uh, the pose, bring that alive. The line between ridiculousness and genius is a very fine one when you deal with monsters. The first thing I usually do when I read those scripts is I go, Jason is in it, got to be night. You kind of have him on an afternoon. It looks like he's like, you know, going to a picnic, you know. Uh, he got to be in the light. He got to be in the backlight. He got to be, be positioned right, and everything circulates around that. We, gotta, we, we have a mystique that we need to preserve and that we need to cater for. And if everybody in every department does that to their fullest capacity, you got something. Because you don't have CGI here, you know. You just have a guy with a hockey mask. So everything now has to cater to that to make it really amazing, right? Um, if that's Conan, if that's Leatherface, if that's Jason. And when people do it right, it becomes an event that I feel is true filmmaking, where every department has to contribute their best, you know. Uh, um you know, I think that's why I like doing these movies as opposed to do, I don't know, my dinner with Andre. Yeah, and speaking of Derek, he's one of the, uh, actually, he's about the only one I've actually spent some time with from the 2009 film. I've uh, spent time with him numerous times at conventions and some of the after parties and stuff. And, you know, yeah. Derek's just a great guy in general. Um, you know, just super great with the fans and, you know, takes his time. And, you know, we've had some drinks here and there and he's just, you know, great with, with everyone. And, you know, I, I think he was a great choice to play the role as Jason. I know others could have, you know, did an exceptional job also, but, you know, Derek, you know, Derek's a monster. Derek plays monster characters. And I think you're exactly right on everything that you said. You know, he, he basically knew what to bring for the character. You know, he said he was a fan you know, uh, I think his terms to me were, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fanboy myself. So, you know, uh, you know, basically I, I understood, you know, what was about to happen when I got the role. Yeah. And even though he does cage fighting in his spare time, he's a complete softy and deep inside, like you said, um, a fanboy, you know, who really genuinely cares, you know, about what he does there. It is so um, sad to think that many people might think, oh, they just, like, got themselves a big guy, you know? I mean, if anybody, he 
lives to play that kind of a part, you know, and and every job he he gets is earned. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was a great choice. I mean, you look at some of his other roles and, you know, it, it just made perfect sense. I mean, you know, you mentioned the body type and, you know, what you were looking for to bring to the character. And I mean, the first two people that come to my mind would be him or Douglas Tate. So, I mean, and either one would have been a great choice, but I mean, Derek just, Derek just rocked the fuck out of that part. I don't care what anybody has to say. He did an amazing job. I'm glad you feel this way. So with the next film in mind, you know, what are your thoughts? I know you've checked out some of the articles and things related to where the franchise stands. You know, what are your just overall thoughts on the next installment of, of Friday? None at all. And this is not said with any, with, with, it's, there's no message in that. Um, to me, in all these cases, you know, I never thought for, for a beat I would do another one. Because look, in a way, I had an easy time. I was cherry picking, you know. I didn't make, you know, like another part. I made sort of an amalgamation in particular here. And uh, with uh, Chainsaw, for example, we went we went back to some original material but still made our own movie. So it was not really a number, you know. I didn't make number 23 or whatever, you know. It was just like, you know, going back and doing sort of the Reader's Digest version of the um of the uh, series, so you sit there and you cherry pick, you know, of things you feel is, you know, in in keeping with the mis- with the mystique and 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 concoct something out of that. Uh, but not for a moment did I feel like, and then what do we do next? And 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 what is the next incarnation? Um, I have not thought at all about, it and I haven't followed it either. Um, uh, 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 but but but. You know, I'm curious and, you know, I would watch it just like you do, like you would, um, without any prejudice and, 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 and with a complete open heart, you know, just wanting to be entertained. Gotcha. And not necessarily to put you on the spot by any means, but... Go right ahead. Do you, do you think that there should be a sequel to your film, or do you think that they should go their own direction with the next one? Oh, uh, I... I, I... I don't even know how that would work because, like I said, it's an amalgamation, right? So, um, you know, if there's maybe some equity to it, you know, in the eyes of the studios, that would be a good reason. Or, you know, should it just continue? I mean, what count are you on? I'm sorry, I don't even know. What was the last one before I did mine? What was number what, number 12 or number? Yeah, we're going to be at number 13. You're going to be at number 13. So, well, I think that's why we called it Friday the 13th. And our, in a way, you could say that was number 13, but it's Friday the 13th, the amalgamation. So essentially, I guess now you could go to number 14, or you can call it 13 again and just skip it. Um, I think yeah, it's they're... really a marketing call, isn't it? Somebody called me not too long ago, and he says, you know, you should make Friday the 14 and cash in really quickly. <laughs> Oh, sure. I just sure. laughed. Yeah, the next film will actually be the 13th one in the installment. Yours would have been 12, so we're going to be at 13. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's pressure just because of the number, you know, the 13th of, you know, Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was just curious if you thought, you know, maybe the direction should have been a sequel because, as you're well aware, 
at the end we see Jason, you know, jumping out of the water and it leaves the door wide open for a sequel, which obviously, you know, continuity isn't always in order, but I was just curious of what your thoughts were on that, you know, now that you have had some time to reflect, you know, uh, back, you know, 2009, now we're in 2017. So I was just curious yeah. of what your overall thoughts were. Uh, no, you look at ours, but like we did, we did, it was like a fast forward, right? To the different beats, you know, it's, you know, you have a flashback uh, to how he was as a kid. You have you have him with the pillowcase and how he finds the mask, you know. So really, it's like it wasn't official sequel, you know. It goes just back to the to the entire lore somehow, um, you know. Probably, you know, I, I I'm I'm different than others. People are really coming down on prequels and all that kind of stuff. I feel there's nothing wrong with the prequel. Not that I would want to do one, but. Um, you know, uh, um, you know they, they trash that as much as they trash remakes right now. Oh, the, um, you know, how somebody came into existence and all that. I'm, I'm, I'm always intrigued by that. I have no problems with that. A close examination of different aspects, you know. Um, uh, but it, it, that's for somebody else to think about. Yeah, I, I got to admit, when I first watched the film, I was expecting to see a sequel of your film. So, but, you know, like I said, I know that that's not always how things work, but if they were to go that route, I would be totally fine with that. There's been talks of them, you know, bringing Friday, you know, back to an eighties retro vibe. I'd be totally fine with that. I'm basically okay with whatever route they want to go. As long as we see some more Friday. You know, it's it's funny on on Texas Chainsaw for a moment, I was thinking about something when they, when they went, they would want to make a sequel and, and, and then, they went to Sheriff Hoyt, which I thought was kind of interesting because I had a similar inclination where where I thought like, you know, the hitchhiker that gets killed right after the first 25 minutes. And I went, you know, maybe the sequel is not a prequel or, you know, a sequel, but a parallel, namely, what's the story of the hitchhiker? You know, what was her story? You know, and I've never seen that before where you see a marginal character I don't know, this is stupid, but then Silence of the Lamb, she has that, you know, when she's working out and so on, she has a black girlfriend or whatever, you know, that black friend uh, that she's, that she, that, that's in her life somehow. How, what if you take just a marginal character and you just say, well, that's their perspective on the whole thing, or like that's what they actually went through, um, and, and just tell the same story one more time just from another, another character. But to me, in order to do something like that, it would have to be an extreme spin on the story so it's not just like following the same pattern one more time but sort of like throwing a complete loop which is i guess why i like so much that in our script you know the first six kids were being killed after the first 25 minutes it was like nothing i've ever seen before i ever heard about again you know and you know one thing i just kind of wanted to mention is to my understanding you were a friday fan prior to you know directing the 2009 film so, you know, with that in mind, what were you able to get in there to influence, you know, some of the tributes that we see to the past films? Were, did you have any influence on that? I mean, I credit obviously... the writers. Look, you know what? For me, horror is something very personal and very much connected to the time when we see those movies for the first time. Here's my feeling, right? A lot of people that critique horror movies and the sequelitis and 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 what it should be and why it's not like the first time they watched a horror movie, they're probably too old. Because here's what I know: 
and I guarantee the same is true for you and for anybody who's listening right now, the the 10, 15 best horror movies of all times are the ones we watched when we were around 18 years old, right? Uh, now, i tell you something very embarrassing about me. Um, I'm born 63. My favorite James Bond is Roger Moore. I'm sorry. It's not Sean Connery. It should be. This is bad, bad director. It's got to be Sean Connery. It's Roger Moore because that's The Spy Who Loved Me, the first one I saw. For me, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker coined my understanding of uh, James Bond, right? Now, you talk to somebody 10 years older to me, they're going to, like, shit themselves when they hear that. How dare you, right? And I have two sons. They think there's nothing wrong with um, the last James Bond. You know, uh, so like, 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 um, you know, it depends when you get exposed to a genre or uh, to a specific material. So if I say I'm a Friday the 13th fan, I'm talking about the ones I saw when I was impressionable. Once I know how the mechanics work, once I know how the franchise works, I'm getting a little bit less invested. And to tell you the truth, I didn't watch them all. You know, uh, that's not what I paid homage to. And what I paid homage to is what I watched when I was an impressionable Boy Scout and I watched the first Friday the 13th movie and how that affected me. Or when I was playing in the sandbox anticipating Conan, you know, not having seen anything of it, what I thought it would be, that's what I paid homage to. It wasn't even the original Conan movie all that much, you know. It was like what I had in my mind, what it probably would be. So... So so that's that's much more, you know, what um what 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 what, what interests me. I think it's uh, horror movies past you know that time when we were that impressionable become increasingly a hard sell. So we become increasingly more critical. Look, um you know, one of my favorite horror movies is Alien, you know. Uh, um you know, uh, it's very hard for me to watch the new versions with fresh eyes, you know. I sometimes wish there would be a drug that would erase anything we know, our whole upbringing, everything we see, we can see for the first time. That includes my own movies after I'm done with them. Um, it's um, uh, You can't go back to that, you know. Like like It's like losing your virginity or your first girlfriend, you know. Uh, 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 so our first movie experiences matter, and they're hard to rekindle. You know. Yeah, that's certainly understandable, and it's it's always cool to hear you know the outlooks of the people that brought us the film. So you know, uh, I just appreciate you sharing you know all your thoughts as far as all that goes. Yeah, you know, Mad Magazine. I referred to it several times now. A lot of R-rated stuff I wasn't even allowed to see. I I I, I saw the first time in Mad Magazine. I go like, oh my god, the guy shoots himself in the head. I got to see that, you know, like when are we going to be able to see that? Uh, it's sort of a weird pastiche of, um, you know, what friends in the schoolyard tell you and, you know, what you anticipate watching a trailer or, you know, uh, 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 an experience like watching a spread in Mad Magazine that suddenly coins your idea of a genre, you know, maybe it's all fucked up, you know, but, 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 but for me, it's this amalgamation of all of that, you know, that comes to play. Sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely. 
Well, I just wanted to thank you for your contribution to Friday and to the horror genre in general. Like I said, I was a big fan of TCM. You know, obviously I'm a big fan of, you know, the 2009 film. So I just uh, wanted to give you a big thanks, you know, for your contributions, you know, to all of us Friday fans. I'm a big fan of fans, and I'm not talking about my fans. I don't even think in those terms, but uh, fans of a certain franchise. Um, you know, to me, my greatest my greatest joy is not an Oscar. It's to see an action figure made based on something I did, or somebody, when you walk through the streets, that wears a T-shirt, you know, with your character or your movie on it. Um, that somebody embraces so much that they want to play it in the sandbox like I did, on a treehouse like I did, or at a campground, and tell each other those stories. Uh, that to me is a real DNA. You know, uh, somebody once stoked that fire, but you know it's burning and it's burning in in all of us. So I'm really, really proud of you and what you're doing there, and 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 I'm really happy for everybody who enjoyed you know the ride together with me. So thank you for for calling. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're doing everything that we can here at Return to Camp Blood to keep Friday alive as much as we can. And we always appreciate, you know, people like yourself that take the time to, you know, jump on and talk a little bit about Friday and, you know, everything that has to do with that and your experiences. And it's it's much appreciated. Uh, no doubt. That, no doubt. Jason never does. We're just fellow travelers, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But with that in mind, you know, we've chatted a little bit about Friday and, uh, you know, we could talk all day about the commercials and the music videos that you've done, right. which I know you're very decorated in your music videos and have worked with a lot of very well-known artists, you know, uh, you know, Puff, Elton John, uh, Janet Jackson. I mean, the list just goes, you know, on and on. Um, you know, if, if there's a, a story that you'd like to share as far as that goes, you know, we'd definitely like to hear about, you know, some of the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff on the music videos, too, if you've got a good story. Well, we can do that another time. Uh, um, it's, it's um, uh, you know, I don't know how much it really relates with the exception that, again, we're talking about fandom. We're talking about little postcards. To fans, you know, if that's a music video or if it's one of those uh, franchises. And, um, uh, um, you know, I always felt, I felt always really at home with that sort of a thing, you know. Um, uh, you know, there's a time for everything and music videos, it seems, almost have run their course, you know. It was such a huge time back then when I did them. But um, you have your your fan experiences, you know, um, it's interesting. Um, you know, when, when I started with it, I did music videos before I did commercials. I actually, was up for, remember Jody Watley and, and Jody Watley was supposed to get a video and, and I wrote something for her and she, she was very specific about what she wanted and what she didn't want. And, and, some might argue it was a little bit difficult to deal with her. And when she sensed that, that I was, you know, that I felt that was difficult, she said, you know what, it's just not like, um, it's just not like another product. It's not a car or, you know, uh, something you buy in the supermarket. You know, we're living and breathing people. And that really impressed me, you know. Um, when you do commercials, these are inanimate objects, you know, and there's some vested interest in and you carry that torch. But, 
from that moment on, I approached everything I did, if that's Jason or a new Toyota, as a living and breathing thing, you know. Uh, um, uh, um, and I call it image, you know. I, I think I deal with image to a certain extent. So what the fans have to say and what the studios have to say and, 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 and what you feel brings it to the next level, really you're talking about image. That's really the main thing. The rest you can invent, you know. But what is that image you want to uphold and contemporize, you know? I mean, look, in religion, there's a company, uh, a lot of people that deals with nothing but that, but updating it uh, for every generation. It's called theology, right? Um, theologians are there to put in perspective in how many days the universe was created and did Jesus really walk with dinosaurs or not, right? They have to deal with that kind of shit because people get more and more educated and they ask more and more questions. And in the very same way, we're sitting there and think just as hard, <laughs> you know, about Jason or Jody Watley. There you have it. Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just thought I would mention your time spent, you know, directing the commercials and the music videos and just throw that out there to the Friday fans that, you know, right, you did contribute. You. you did contribute to a lot of, you know, music videos that I'm sure that many of them have seen and probably just didn't realize that you actually directed. So, yeah, yeah, it all it, it all builds up on each other. Absolutely. Um, I, I read the funny thing the other day. Somebody said, um, um, here's what studios get wrong when they make horror movies. So I like, when, like, I'm going to read this, right? And it was a really well-written article, actually. I forgot all the details, but he said, number one, don't give the job to a horror director <laughs> because the best horror movies have been done by guys that are not horror directors. You know, Friedkin, or, you know, if you look at uh, 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 Science of the Lambs, or Roman Polanski and Rosemary's Baby, these were not horror movie directors. Number two, stay away from the rock and roll music and all of that, or the, the, the happening music soundtrack, right? Don't make it the teenage thing. Essentially, pretty much everything <laughs> that is wrong when people hired me, right? And, and, and as I mature in this business, I myself look at this and look at the merits of somebody like that, because I think what he's saying is, stop trying to live up to an audience's expectations. Just do great. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And just, you know, from our, our discussions, you know, I think that's pretty much how your outlook was on 2009 film. Well, it's interesting, you know, what uh, Villeneuve is doing, is, uh, pronounce his name right, Villeneuve is doing um, the remake of uh, Blade Runner, you know. Um, I think that's a great call because if you, I look at the movies he did leading up to it, and... Um, and, and I'm pretty sure Ridley Scott would agree with that, you know. He's a smart guy. He's not, it's not exactly his genre, you know, uh, um, not exactly. But you know he will rise to the occasion. He will bring something to it that is not your typical, you know, standard standard genre fare. So, so I'm really looking forward to that as far as remakes go because I watched uh, – Ensemble's or whatever what this the movie he did in in uh, um, you know what, what what seems to be a place like Afghanistan or whatever, and you go like wow you know he's a real different vision he has real interesting storytelling and I can really see that applied to the universe of of, of Blade Runner you know I think studios should think much less about who's a shoe in here. Uh, you know, for our franchise, but who's the unexpected choice for it? And I think more and more 
that is starting to happen and it's about time, you know. Oh yeah, definitely. And, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, all the projects out there and everything, you know, that's going on in the film industry. Is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners as far as projects that you're currently working on or anything that's coming up in the future that you would like to, you know, put out there for them to hear about? You know, I don't hustle for the stuff anymore. So, you know, I, I put this out, but I don't run after it. I'm dying to get meetings and talk people into something that possibly they don't want. But uh, I did, I did, um, I did uh, develop three things that I that I'm excited about. Um, one is something that I hope to do next, and it's uh, it's about Linda Kasabian and her time with uh, Charlie Manson. Uh, Linda Kasabian was the one who got him live, essentially, but she was also one of his disciples that drove to Cielo Drive. Very fascinated by anything Manson. But what I think is most fascinating for people that don't know that much about him or only know, you know, what he got to the media so far, um, he was not an outsider who resided somewhere in Topanga Canyon. He was a Hollywood insider, actually. He developed screenplays for Steve McQueen. He, you know, did B-sides for uh, Beach Boy music. He interviewed with Doris Day's son, the producer of the Doris Day uh, show, to get a part of the monkeys and was so bent out of shape that he wanted to kill him when he didn't get it. And when he rang the buzzer where he lived with his then-wife, Candace Bergen, uh, Sharon Tate opened the door, and, uh, and, and the rest is history. But what leads up to that fateful ring of the buzzer is what I consider um, something that is almost, in a sad way, uh, hilarious, um, kind of like what Boogie Nights is to the porn industry because there were all amateurs in a way, you know, nobody was cut out to do what they did. And they were on this runaway carousel and this runaway train and, and, and this insanity of all that is uh, Moonchild. And that's one of the things I've been showing around lately. And as far as what might interest you uh, for what is more direct horror genre, um, I just uh, finished a script with uh, Johanny Normi. He's actually a writer I met through Facebook who lives at the Arctic Circle and loves the thing and alien as much as I do. And he says, oh, we got to do something together. And I said, um, I don't know. I said, like, you know, like, like, like something like alien, what would that be? And I told him about um, a Nordic lore that he was actually being Norwegian very, um, uh, um, oh, I'm sorry, he's going to kill me now. He's finished. Um uh, as a Finn that he's very familiar with, and that's uh, the story of the Klabautermann, which is ostensibly a poltergeist that operates on water. It's you know sort of a you know a Nordic tale, and and um, um, uh, and he has a strange code of honor. You know, if you if you are a bad person, you know he can really go after you, but 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 he also works on the behalf of those that have been wronged. And we spun sort of a tale around it. And uh, and uh, it's called Stowaway. It's about the Club Ottoman lore. And and we're excited, very excited about it. So we're hoping to get this off the ground also. Awesome. That sounds like a great project. And I'll definitely look forward to seeing more details about that later. Thanks. Oh, and the third one um, actually would be in your world also to a certain extent. And it's... Um, it's uh, called Immaculate, and it's a Crichton-esque thriller. Um, kind of um, imagine like a marathon man meets Rosemary's baby, uh, where a girl is pregnant and doesn't know why. And, you know, as 
people around her get killed and targeted, you know, you go, I see where that's going. You know, she surely is pregnant with uh, with Satan's seed here, right? And it's one of those kind of movies. But the reality is that she is in a boarding school, in a, in a Catholic boarding school, in a, in a Catholic school uh, where um, there is a priest who is doing experiments with DNA that he crafted off a, that he grafted off a nine-inch nail that he found on the hills of Golgotha, and there's good reason to believe that she's pregnant with Christ. And I feel so much worse has happened in the name of Christ in this world wars. You know, six uh, six thousand wars in two thousand years. It's a pretty bad track record for Christianity. Um, uh, 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 that I felt, you know, it would be interesting to to make that kind of a movie about, you know, all the, the bloodshed that happens in the name of Christ when they feel they think they're dealing with him. You know, so much unholy riffraff was executed on the or crucified on the hills of Golgotha. Who knows what she's pregnant with? And at the end, is it really just in the eye of the beholder? And what do you get from DNA? Do you get what Jesus attained in the mountains? Maybe at best you wind up with a really talented carpenter, and that's immaculate. So those are the three things that I'm passionate about these days, and you know, they're not remakes for a change. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the king of the remakes, but those sound like some great projects also. I, I so have I'm... to wear this down. You know, I hope I get to wear this down <laughs> on yeah. my, my remake sins, you know. So I think <laughs> I owe myself and others something, something original, and I leave the remakes to the next generation where it really should be. Sure, sure. Well, like I said, I appreciate your contributions and your uh, involvement with the remakes was was great in our book. Uh, We definitely support all your work. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Well, all right, that wraps up another episode of Return to Camp Blood, so please rate and review wherever you listen to the show at. If you have any questions or comments, you can contact us on our Facebook page or email at feedback at campbloodpodcast.com. This episode was brought to you by Friday the 13th Franchise.com. Until next time.